Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I've been thinking a lot about truth in advertising lately. Uh, because I find that I am gullible and can be very easily duped by products that overpromise their results. Uh, I have had an encounter with bear paint recently in which this has happened to me. I was looking in a Consumer Reports about the best paint, and uh, and evidently bear won the awards. Uh, it did very well regarding almost all of the tests. Uh, got the highest score, with the exception of color definition, which seems to me fairly important when it comes to paint, but nevertheless. So I picked up this pamphlet from Home Depot, and that pamphlet, printed by Bear, Bear Paint, told me that I, me, Ethan, little old me, was invited to become part of the Bear Paint family. That was very exciting for me. Um, in using bear paint, the pamphlet told me that I would be constantly inspired by the glamorous colors of each individual and distinctive room within my home. My very walls would invoke a new kind of love. My family would gather together in these various rooms with their arms wrapped around each other. It was in the photo, and I was convinced uh, even my friends would respect me more because of the dazzling nature of my home, especially if I purchased the Marquis collection of paints, which had great names, great names like Harvest Home, Cabin in the Woods, Castle in the Sky, and my favorite, Dandelion Wish. I mean, truth in advertising. They were trying to sell me happiness that if I just purchased this paint, I could literally color my world in such a way that I would be demonstrably helped in every area of my life. Well, what do I want to talk about today? I want to talk about the beautiful and difficult honesty of Jesus Christ, because he was somebody who really believed in truth in advertising and not selling people a bill of goods, not offering false advertising. He was very candid with his followers about what it would mean to follow him. And he's sending the apostles out on a missionary journey, and he's helping them to understand what they will have to grapple with as they uh, seek to lean in to the vision of the kingdom of God which Jesus offers and I want to focus today only on verses 34 through 39. They're dense enough for our consideration. And I want to speak today about Jesus' honesty, his hard honesty regarding relational and personal pain. He speaks a lot in this passage about relational and personal pain, and he employs violent imagery to communicate to his disciples. And this violent imagery has stayed within the human imagination, and whether people are religious or not, they have heard these words, and many of them have remembered them. 
And so when it comes to relational imagery, Jesus uses the violent image of a sword. And when it comes to personal pain and that imagery, he gives us the vision of the cross. And so I want to speak about swords and crosses as they relate to our own apprenticeship to Jesus. So let's go with the sword at first. And this is uh, uh, beginning in verse 34, where Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's a lot of meaning packed into those uh, verses. And let me, let me unpack some of it. Uh, let's talk about the sword at first, this rather unsettling image. I remember seeing an icon once, and it's very ancient, and it comes from the, uh, the Byzantine church, and it's an icon of Jesus, and he is decorated as a Byzantine soldier. He has scaly, golded armor, gilded armor all over himself. He carries a shield, and he carries uh, a very intimidating sword. And I thought that image was rather striking, because here you have the Prince of Peace, donning armor for warfare. Uh, and a, a sword is an unusual word to associate with Jesus. We would associate it more with the, the King Arthur's court, with soldiers, with Genghis Khan, but not with Jesus Christ. Uh, and um, I want to say very quickly that uh, Jesus uh, is, is not being literal here. He's not really saying that he's here to set up militias that will kill families. You probably know that, but it's important to mention it because some people have taken these passages uh, quite literally and have taken up weapons in the name of Jesus to establish the kingdom of God, forgetting that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. That means that it doesn't employ the means of power that this world often employs. But Emperor Constantine did something like this. Uh, he claimed to have a vision in which the first letters of uh, of Christ's name appeared to him, and he thought that if he painted them in red letters on his soldiers' shields, that they would march forth and be able to achieve success uh, because they used Christ's name like a talisman in order to achieve military victory. In this sign you shall conquer was the idea. But Jesus is not being literal here, and how do we know that? We know that because of the context. Whenever he speaks about a sword, he then talks about the effect of this sword. And what is the effect of the sword? It's not blood and murder, it's division. Division within families. That's what he is expressing in this passage, that his effect, even within the closest relationships, will be one of, at least at times, division. So the sword means something like division, cutting apart relationships, uh, causing strife to occur between his followers and uh, their own families. Now, that still begs the question, how does that make sense, given Jesus's personality and the other New Testament material? Is he not known, at least prophetically from Isaiah, as the Prince of Peace? Uh, at the Christmas announcement, the angel said that he is here to bring peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We know from St. Paul that part of the fruit of the Spirit, the effect of the Spirit of Jesus is love, joy, uh, peace, patience, among other things. 
Doesn't St. Paul say that Jesus brings peace that passes all understanding? Doesn't Jesus establish a brotherhood and bonding between people? We see this at Pentecost where linguistic and nationalistic walls are broken down so that people can connect uh, to him and become unified and in harmony with one another. And moreover, doesn't the fifth commandment that Jesus certainly ascribed to and believed in require honor of father and mother? That is, harmony and respect toward one's elders. So what on earth does Jesus mean when he says that he's come to bring a sword? Well, I think we get hints of his meaning in another place in the Gospels, actually at the Last Supper, when Jesus speaks again of peace in a repeated way. In John chapter 14, where Jesus is sitting with his apostles, his chosen tribe, he is marching toward his own death. He gives them a little lesson regarding peace, and he says, my own, my peace I give to you, my own peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So he's making a distinction between a kind of tranquility and harmony that he is able to offer and a false kind of peace and equilibrium that the world seeks to offer or claims to be able to offer. Uh, and I think that's what he's getting at here, that Jesus is here to destroy, to eradicate a false vision of peace, which really in truth is no peace. It's just sort of a settledness within a dysfunction, but it's not true peace. And so he's here to eradicate kind of a false tranquility. And he, he's, Jesus is uh, only a friend to an honest kind of peace with God and with others, but he despises a false peace that papers over sin and dysfunction and, uh, and a, a malformed humanity. Uh, and, and, and this is important because Jesus is indicating in this passage that there is a higher loyalty, a higher good, and a higher allegiance even to those most precious souls that God has given to us. And if we seek peace with those other people without keeping the highest good in mind, we actually will miss out on the perfect peace that God wishes to give our own relationships. There is a higher good, a higher justice, a higher accountability that transcends our parents, our blood kinship, our president, our nation, our heroes, our authors, our professors. All other authorities under God, all other authorities and all other bonds are by nature flawed. Everybody you know that speaks into your life is a flawed individual. Um, they are a hybrid. At best, everybody is a hybrid. I'm a hybrid. You are a hybrid. Uh, we are hybrids of truth and dishonesty. Uh, we are hybrids of integrity and sin. Um, we are hybrids of maturity and immaturity. Uh, we are hybrids of integration and disintegration. That's just what we are. And therefore, we can't rely only upon the, the wisdom or the achievable tranquility with one another because there, there is a higher good 
that will give light and illumination and health to our earthly relationships. Um, And if we um, find ourselves attaching to this one untarnished good and finding our chief loyalty with this one untarnished good, that will create all sorts of difficulty within our earthly relationships, right? Um, Remember the psalmist said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There's this sense in which there's a higher good and a higher accountability that we have to latch to and find our shelter in. If we don't do that, we will settle for a dysfunctional harmony amongst people that will lack a transcendent healing element. I see this uh, in families all the time. Families very often settle for a dysfunctional harmony. Because people will always seek to create harmony with one another because strain and stress is, generally speaking, unless you're totally psychotic and pathological, too difficult to bear. And so what you will do is you will create a false peace just to get through the day. And so this happens all the time in families. Like, don't, at the, don't mention dad's drinking problem. We know that he overdoes it, but don't talk about it because if you talk about it, you know how he'll get and he got violent three times in the last year. We can't handle that. So let's just not, we can't do talk about that right now. Don't talk about your sister's racist joke at Thanksgiving. Like, please, like, let's just ignore it and, and pretend she didn't say it. Or let's laugh a little so that we can go on to another subject. But let's not actually address that she's like verbally abusing part of the human race. Let's not do that. Or um, let's ignore the fact that um, uh, that uh, mom is constantly uh, working herself to death. And she says she's doing it for the family, and, and she's working really hard to get us money and, and everything else. But if we bring it up, it'll really upset her. Um, even if she's not spending time with us, you know, she's trying her best. And let's not rock the boat. Let's not rock the boat. Or my, you know, your boss is flirting with you inappropriately, acting uh, toward you in a slightly predatory way, but it's not assault, right? But it's, there are these verbal cues and hints that he's giving you that are very suggestive. Well, let's not talk about that because if you talk about that, you might get fired or you might get looked down upon. You might not get a promotion. So let's just paper over that, pretend like it's not happening. Well, that's what we do. We just settle. We settle all the time. And what Christ is telling us here is I've come to destroy you in that way, destroy your little games because it's not working. It's only hurting you. You're dancing all the time to to dodge landmines. And I want to take that away so that you can have actual peace, healthy peace that will build you as a human being, uh, that will contribute to your ultimate good and the good of those around you. And I won't settle for games. I won't settle for games. Um, Peace and alignment with that higher good will create temporary division among people. They'll be ticked off. If you start getting healthy in your own unhealthy family, they're not going to like it because they like the unhealthy you because it makes them feel like they're okay. But Jesus is saying, I'm here to give you true health. I'm here to give you true peace. And your chief loyalty to me will then create true peace between you and other people. But if we are aligned with the highest good, we won't play games, we won't cover up, we won't settle for a false peace. And that will at times bring a sword. And Jesus is warning people, when you latch onto the highest good, it brings a sword to lesser goods at times. He wants us to know that. And that hurts. The sword imagery is not a pleasant one. Cutting, it's a difficult image. 
a serrated effect of Jesus Christ within our own lives is not something to take lightly, and it is something to take into consideration as we count the cost of what it means to follow somebody whose life ended on a public scaffold. I have to take that into consideration, the sword. But then he just gets worse. This is what Jesus does, right? He sets us up. He gets worse. He says, not only is it going to involve relational pain, it's going to involve personal pain. That is to the core of your very identity, not just to those external to you, but within you, personal pain. He says in verse 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Consider for a moment the shock of this statement. The shock of this statement to his hearers. They didn't know the end of the story. They didn't know about the trek toward Jerusalem. Jesus had never spoken of a cross before this particular point. Certainly not in relationship to himself. That doesn't happen until Matthew 16, years later, or months later, when Jesus begins to speak about his own death. The disciples at this point are only seeing success. I mean, this is the first time in human history where you have had such a saturation of miracles. You have uh, people with mental illness being cured. You have people who could never see in their whole lives see sunsets. You have people that have been haunted by demonic oppression, suddenly exercised and totally made whole. And you have women who have been uh, struggling with uncleanness, totally made clean. And beautiful things are happening, and people still like Jesus. They like what he says. They find his teaching to be interesting. And so they're all huddled around him, and they want to hang on every word. And so it's all success. And the disciples at this moment are expecting Jesus to live to the ripe old age of 87, you know, with a big, long, white beard. And he's going to, you know, sit on a platinum throne, either in uh, Jerusalem or in Rome, and, and have all sorts of you know, helpers in little gilded outfits who want to get him tea and coffee. And I mean, it's all good. It's all success. And they think that they're going to be vice regents and governors within his little empire and establishment. And so it's all looking really, really good so far. And then Jesus gets very cryptic with them. He says, yes, you're going out. You're going to do all these miracles. And by the way, swords, crosses. Uh, so he gets cryptic. He describes his followers as cross bearers. And remember, the cross here is not an image of discomfort. Yes, being a disciple will hurt every once in a while because, you know, the cross is sort of a discomforting image. No, no, no. The cross is a symbol for death, not for discomfort. Uh, he's saying to them that you're going to bear an implement that will lead to a, a, some sort of destruction. And this, the cross, was a shameful image culturally and biblically. Culturally, it was shameful because the Romans reserved crucifixion uh, for the worst offenders, right? for the rough equivalent of child molesters of their time. They would strap those people with leather bonds or ropes to crosses. Sometimes they would pound spikes into their wrists and feet uh, and hang them up there for hours, days, weeks, until the corpses rotted or animals uh, um, desecrated the bodies. And that's what they did. And they hung them up like telephone poles along the road so that people going in and out of cities would see this is what happens to you uh, if you go against uh, the directives of the emperor, you die in this way, naked, alone, and ashamed as your weeping mother watches you collapse into nothingness. That was the message that they were trying to send, and it was extremely effective, extremely effective. 
But the Romans didn't invent crucifixions. The, the Phoenicians did it. The Egyptians did it. Uh, this practice goes way back. And maybe this is why it worked its way into Scripture. Because crucifixion was seen as biblically shameful. There's an obscure passage. It doesn't seem to really fit in Deuteronomy, this uh, second book of the law in the Old Testament, in which uh, is inscribed a, an odd and obscure saying, Cursed is any man who hangs from a tree. It's a veiled reference to crucifixion. Uh, and, and the question is, why? Why would this be mentioned in the Old Testament? Why, why does a divine uh, reprimand get evidenced in the act of crucifixion? Well, within the law covenant, there is this retributive theology idea that if you do something wrong, something bad happens to you, right? And so the thought was, if you end up dying in that grisly fashion, you did something horrific to deserve it, and heaven is thus displaying its most intense displeasure for you as you hang on a cross or a tree and die. I mean, that's the idea. So it's culturally shameful as well as biblically shameful. This is why St. Paul later, later says that Jesus became a curse for us, right? That his death on the cross, he takes in all of those negative associations within his own body and heart at that moment. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Well, some people have taken this literally, actually, through the years, just like they took the sword literally. They took the cross literally, and people in the Philippines, maybe even at this moment, are willfully laying down their bodies on crosses and being spiked into them in order to expiate for their own sins uh, or to um, show their piety uh, to their country, their neighbors, a thinking that somehow if they inflict or are willfully inflicted uh, with enough pain, they can somehow transcend their own evil or be a good example of holiness. But that's uh, clearly not what it means. And we know that's not what Jesus means because St. Paul, uh, the great interpreter of Jesus, understood his words metaphorically. And that's why in Romans 6, uh, Paul, looking back on the crucifixion of Jesus and knowing the words of Jesus, said um, that you have been crucified with Christ. There's something about Jesus' action of death that has usurped you and taken you into that narrative and into that story. And therefore, Paul concludes, you need to put to death what is earthly in you or sinful in you. Put to death what is sinful in you. What's fascinating about that, of course, um, is that uh, that the cross image that Jesus gives his followers is, in fact, speaking of a death that we need to experience. But it's not a redemptive death like his. He achieved something that we can't achieve through our crosses. Um, but there is something about his model in laying his life down that has very sobering ramifications for us. Um, he's saying to his followers, I'm going to um, shock you with this statement that you're going to have to bear a cross. In other words, if you follow me, certain things that you love in life will die by necessity. Some things will die. You will experience many existential funerals within your own lifetime. Uh, and and St. Paul connects this with the idea of sin, that sin in our own lives 
is worthy of death. Uh, Jesus came not only to forgive it, but to eradicate it. And that, like the cross image, of course, involves pain. Somebody said, well, how do you begin to know what in your life needs to die? What do you, how do you know the answer to that question? Um, there's actually a very easy answer to this. Um, sit in your room by yourself and ask the question, what am I doing right now in my life to actively sabotage myself and sabotage the people that I love? What am I doing right now that is causing pain? And you will get an answer so fast uh, that your head will spin. It actually is not that complicated. The question is, why don't we ask the question more? And it's probably because we don't want to know the answer, or at least speaking personally, I'm not sure I want to know the answer all the time. Do you really want to open up that Pandora's box? But if we don't, if we don't open up that Pandora's box, if we don't open up the chest cavity, if we don't actually see what's going on, we don't get well and nobody else gets well either. And we're stuck in arrested development, spiritual arrested development, and we remain uh, absolutely paralyzed in the things that are destroying God's world. And God has better things for you. And, what, and God's better things always begin with sort of a painful annihilation that will then sober us and wake us up and expand our humanity and put us in a more risen, solid, muscular, favorable place in which we become true, truly ourselves, larger as people. Um, now, this is a difficult word, right? Because Jesus also says in this passage, um, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Um, comparing that to the cross imagery, laying yourself down, losing your life. That's what the cross means. Why is that difficult in our current cultural moment? Because we believe, for all sorts of complex historical reasons, that salvation is found within. That true salvation comes from self-discovery and self-expression. That really, the core of my identity has yet to be discovered, but with enough help and enough um, psycho psychological insight, and with enough introspection, I will find the holy grail within myself, discover my true self, express my true self, and thus be totally free. Jesus says just the opposite. Now, not every bit of self-discovery is bad. Lots of it's very good. But if you think that you are your own Christ, or you are your own salvation, uh, we, are, we are light years from the mindset of Jesus. Because he said, look, there are some things you just can't do. And I have to offer you what you can't offer yourself. And salvation is always the external word of God that comes to you from outside. So that's why he says you have to lose your life in order to find it, which is a word against sort of our obsession with self-discovery. So that's something about the sword and something about the cross. And what I love about Jesus is that he doesn't lie to me. Well, I should... I should revise that. What I love and struggle with from Jesus is that he doesn't lie to me. Who doesn't like to be lied to? You're wonderful just the way you are. Everything about you is terrific. Your habits are great. You don't have as many problems as your brother or your sister or your husband or your wife. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. Now, some of those things are true. Sometimes that's nice to hear. A little affirmation is okay once in a while. But, but Jesus is not like bare paint. He's not saying, I'm going to enter your life 
and make everything decadent in the way that you want it to be, right? Um, instead, he says, there's ma- there are many good things that are coming, that are going to come into your life because of me, but also there's a sword and there's a cross. There's relational pain, there's personal pain. And so my question to you is, are you ready for the sword that is relational pain? Now, hopefully, we will never have to choose between Christ and a girlfriend, or Christ and a boyfriend, or Christ and a father, or Christ and a mother, or Christ and an employer, or Christ and a country. Hopefully, they'll all be aligned, right? But if they're not, if they're not, if anybody says to you, I deserve your chiefest loyalty, know that there is one who gave his life for you effectively, and no one else has ever done that. And our chiefest loyalty lies with him. And so are you ready for that sword? And are you ready for the cross, personal pain? Alden Hathaway, the former bishop of Pittsburgh, used to say to his new clergy, and he said to me even after he was retired from being bishop, so I resented it, he said to his new clergy, so do you look good on wood? Meaning at some point, you're going to feel the nails in the pain and be spiked existentially. Uh, And that is inevitable. Um, There's a bumper sticker, maybe you've seen it, it just says, are you saved? I've always thought that was funny because there's no context to it. Like, saved by what, from what, for what, it doesn't answer the question. Maybe it's so clever it wants us to ask those questions, but I doubt it. Uh, I, don't tr- I don't trust Christian bookstores to produce things that are clever. Um, but, uh, but you say, are you saved? Well, from what? Well, in Christianity, we're saved from two things. One is the consequences of sin, that is, God's justice. But we're also, thankfully, saved from sin itself, where God, even in this life, begins to kill it, begins to unwrap the barbed wire that is strangling us, tightly wrapped around our throats. He seeks to kill sin itself. And that means losing the things we love. Because we love sin. At least certain sins. Why? Because they work. They dilute pain. They help us get through. They don't help in the long run. But they help in the short run. That's why we do it. If sin were just discomforting and lacking in pleasure, we wouldn't sin. But... There's something in our nature that craves that easy catharsis. Um, And that means personal pain, losing the things we love. And instead learning, learning as an apprentice of Jesus what it means to embrace the life that he embodies, which is a free life, unencumbered, unchained. So this is a very heavy Crosses, swords. How do we bear the potential pains of crosses and swords? Um, I think in part the answer is to remember that we have a Christ at the center of this religion who has already walked through that damnable dark valley and has survived it. That he's, he is not asking us to do anything that he has not done himself a hundred times over within his own experience. He experienced the sword, that is relational pain. His own family, mother and brothers, wanted to put him into an asylum. That was in Mark chapter 3. His friends fled away from him. 
his country Judased him to death, and politicians clapped as he died. He experienced that sword. He experienced, of course, the cross. He died nude and alone on a hill under a bruised and silent sky. It reminds me of Iris DeMent's lovely song entitled God um, Walks the Dark Hills. The lyrics are, God walks the dark hills and life's troubled sea. He walks the cold night, the shadows of midnight. God walks the dark hills because he loves you and me. And Jesus received a great reward for his distinctive and unique labor. St. Paul writes this about his effect. The righteous died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So we worship a victor, a survivor, one who has faced down the swords as well as the crosses. And this same survivor made a solemn vow to you, crossed his heart and hoped to die, that our finish line is neither the sword nor the cross, because he said, whoever loses their life for my sake will indeed find it. And that goes for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not.